Hello, my name is Brandon Vogt, and you're listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast. Just a quick uh, couple of introductory warnings uh, and comments. Uh, first off, I have a cold today, so bear with the sound of my kind of gravelly voice. And second, we're currently in the midst of our 12th season, and this is the first episode of that. And you may be asking, hey, didn't you have another show? We did. We had a show with Minneapolis Police Chief Janae Hartow. Unfortunately, uh, there was a technical glitch with the recording of that episode, and it only recorded the first seven seconds and not the rest of the hour and a half. And so uh, we don't have that. We've taken means to uh, have a backup recording of each show, and change our system around. So hopefully uh, that won't happen in the end. Um, sorry for anyone who was looking forward to that. We were too. Um, but on to our uh, show. Our guest uh, today is Rebecca Otto, who is the Minnesota State Auditor. She was first elected in 2006 and re-elected for a second and third term. In 2013, she became president of the National State Auditors Association. She is currently a candidate for Minnesota governor, and she received her BA in biology from McAllister College and her master's in education from the University of Minnesota. She currently lives in May Township in a renewable energy home that she and her husband Sean built with their own hands in 1995. The house is regularly open for tours if you're ever in the area and want to stop by. I'd also like to mention our media sponsor this season, MinPost, which provides reader-supported news and analysis at www.minpost.com. This uh, season of the show is also supported by a grant from the Metropolitan Regional Arts Council and the Clean Water, Land, and Legacy Amendment. Uh, we could do it without them, but they make it a whole lot easier and better. Um, yeah, if you want to come to any of our live shows, the season is ongoing. So uh, every Monday at the Bright Lake Bowl in March and April, we're doing shows. So we hope to see you there, where you could see uh, what this crazy thing looks like in person. Uh, but for everyone else who's just listening, I hope you enjoy the show. Thanks. Thank you so much for being here. We're very excited to have you. I'm very excited <coughs> to be here. I can't see them, though. No, well, is that good? there's a lot of them. Just trust that. Uh, th there's a ton okay, of them. Good, okay, good. And All right. So uh, thank you so much for being here. I, I, I teased a little on Twitter as we were getting ready for this show uh, that I was going to just ask sort of what the role of the state auditor is. Uh, because it's something that we all uh, see on ballots and we kind of know. but And then I was actually trying to research it like that would be a silly question. But it's actually really kind of complicated what it is that you're supposed <laughs> to do every day. Yes. So uh, when you wake up, do you have like just a to-do list of like, <laughs> all right, Carver County. Oh, we've got to make it through the seas today. Or how do you how do you approach sort of what just talk about when you were first elected, what did you think like these are the things that we need to get done as a state auditor? Oh gosh. Okay, first of all, you have a staff of ninety, so I don't have to do it all myself. That's the good news. And they're around the state of Minnesota. What I tell people is every day I work to make sure people can trust their government. It's easy to boil down. So trust comes from accountable, transparent government. And if something goes wrong financially in your community, your city, your county, your township, your special service district, regional government like Metropolitan Council, who do you call? The state auditor. So, so we're the place that you call. And um, I serve on six-day boards as well. So we, we do our work first. The staff does their work through um, reviewing financial information, issuing reports. We do education. We're trying to have local officials be good stewards of public funds from the very beginning rather than just catching them doing something wrong. And investigating, we try to help them do it right because we like good government in the state of Minnesota. So you say, do people literally call you and they're like, "Listen, I'm pretty sure they they missed carrying a one there on the city budget. Like, you should look into this." Um, I haven't gotten that call, 
But um, I have gotten calls that either someone's taking something or – so if you're working in local government, the law requires you call us so you have evidence of theft or misuse of public funds or assets. And so we do get calls sometimes. Now, they don't always pan out. Sometimes there's something that's messy or records can be messy. But there are circumstances in Minnesota, unfortunately, where people have actually, actually taken money. So uh, let's talk about – so you you go through and you uh, – look into a particular city or and it's not just cities either it's because uh, i was looking through some of this so it's like the uh city liquor municipal liquor store and the municipal yes. airport commission yes. and uh every sort of branch of the city. council and hospital districts and yeah there's a lot of local government in minnesota so what happens when if you find something you do find that somebody's doing something or a city's mm-hmm. Uh, let's just start with sort of the very easy one. Somebody's doing something actually nefarious and purposefully like illegal. Do you are you carrying a gun right now? Like what do you uh, what do you do? Yeah, no. Oh no, <laughs> no, I'm not carrying. There is a state. One of my peers carries a gun. It's down south. They have badges too. Can I say most of the states are down south? Well, but um, it doesn't really narrow it down. That um, wasn't even funny, Tane. They thought it was funny, though. But no, I way, way. <laughs> that anyway, wasn't even funny. Uh, way down so, south. Way down way south. Way down south. But, okay. And so, so anyway, but no, they carry badges and guns. And if we are ever in that situation in Minnesota, we're in a whole lot of hurt. Because what they're doing down there is they're, they're chasing fraud every day. Fraud and corruption, fraud and corruption. Minnesota has had better systems put into place. They contemplated, our, our founders contemplated good government and independent oversight when they wrote our constitution. But the legislatures have also contemplated good government. So in Minnesota, we generally don't have a lot of really bad things happening. We have some. You can't avoid it all, but we don't have it like some of the really far down southern states. So (laughs) I am curious, though, on this uh, sort of enforcement question, because I can uh, – you – you put together a report that says, you know, so-and-so in such city is, you know, uh, taken 2% Mm -hmm. off the Mm -hmm. top. Mm -hmm. And then they say, okay, good report, auditor. Uh, Come and get me. No, Uh, no, 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 no. Okay, so we work with law enforcement. So when something goes wrong, law enforcement, the local law enforcement is informed right away. Sometimes we work with them um, to help them do the investigation. Sometimes we will do the forensic audit ourselves. We'll go through the records and help the local government figure out exactly what happened. And... um, Generally, it'll be local law enforcement. Then the county attorney has the prosecutorial authority, so we'll send our reports to them. And then they determine whether a crime has been committed and whether they should charge. And um, when we've done the forensic work, they have successfully charged people that have done um, something not quite right. So I I wanted to start with that piece of somebody doing something actually nefarious. I imagine a lot, though, of the things that you find are people just – or cities or uh, agencies just making mistakes or doing things sloppily or whatnot. And so when you find that, what mm-hmm. is, is there sort of a rectifying mechanism? Mm-hmm. Or do they, again, just say, well, we, we use threes differently down here no. in uh, Winona <laughs> County or something like that. So yeah. you can take your highfalutin St. Paul figures and abacus and take it and sh- whatever. We don't use abacuses anymore, but yeah. <laughs> I can't wait for the improv. I'm trying to imagine what they're going to be doing in a minute. Um, no, so, so we realize we have 853 cities in the state of Minnesota. Over 600 of those cities are under 2,500 in population. So just understand that. And then we have over 1,700 townships, 87 counties. We have over 600 special service districts. 
So d- depending on the size and the size of the staff, there are messy things that happen sometimes. But um, And so I wouldn't say we argue over the threes, you know, um, but there will be times where they aren't in compliance with the law. So what we do is we will issue a letter and say, we received a concern, here's what we've, what we've found, here's what you need to do in the future. So we, and we send educational materials along, um, once in a while, we come back to an entity because there's still issues. Because you just like, did you read the educational material? <laughs> do you get, do you give them like a quiz on well, what was in the material? Like you ask for a report, a book report? Well, you know what we do. Sometimes we'll say we want you to follow up. So if they need to create a policy and pass it by the governing body, we'll say we want you to send that to us and your meeting minutes showing you officially adopted it. So there are ways for us to follow up. What I love is that residents of a community know we're there. And so if something continues, they can come to us. And um, the good news in Minnesota is generally it's not really big stuff. Um, But we are there. We are the deterrent factor um, for misuse of government funds. And there are times when they don't follow the laws. Sometimes it truly is a mistake. And so we also help them along those lines too. And we help them get on the right path. So the idea is is to always make sure the right things are happening and help them avoid the problems. And uh, so uh, some of these places, uh, you know, may or may not uh, do the right thing. Uh, I, I am still sort of curious, though, uh, your your relationship with them and the auditor's relationship with these places. So they, um, I don't know, do they, are, are they excited when you come to town? <laughs> Is there like, a, do they bring out the marching band or... Uh, no, so if, if I, my staff warned me when I first got to the office, I called some different officials and things, and they said, you know, you should probably understand that when the state auditor calls that it might scare people. So they said, even though you're nice, you know, just understand that when they say the state auditor's on the phone and they want to talk to you that their blood is going to run cold. So I am careful. I did call a sheriff, however, uh, one, it was the 4th of July or maybe the day before 4th of July, and I read a quote in a newspaper that was wrong, and they attributed something to me, and so I gave him a little jingle, and I said, hey, Sheriff, it's the state auditor, and he said, oh, hi. And I said, so I understand that you said, and he said, yeah, and I said, well, that's not quite right. So we had a little conversation, and he said, I'm really surprised you're in the office today. I said, well, I work a lot. So we got that cleared up. So um, I'm always happy to call and, and, and work with people. So uh, your office produces a ton of reports Yes. Uh, right, like in a ton of <laughs> letters and things like that. But I, I'm. This is a sincere question. Uh, who are these reports for? Uh, right, like who? You, who, me. Well, okay, really. Um, <laughs> okay, no, I'll, I'll tell take you. you up on that because I brought some of these reports with me. <laughs> did you? <laughs> I did. No, I brought parts of the letter because uh, there's like parts of these. So this was. Um, well, this one I printed out because this was about a park shelter. Oh, I know that. One. Why? <laughs> Why I'm just are park shelters under the state auditor's sort of purview? Uh, all of them, because there's one that uh, the shingles are not good. <laughs> well, that was a situation where there was a park shelter and they were going to remove it, and then it suddenly disappeared overnight, and it suddenly showed up in someone's city council's on their land. <laughs> Somebody stole a park. So park I didn't so, know we were, could do that. Yeah, so we followed up and we we made some phone calls and did some checking and looked at documentation because we look at the paper trail. That's what auditors do, and you want to make sure everyone's com- complying with the law. And that park shelter ended up getting returned to the city on a trailer, um, and it had been removed by I think taking a chainsaw and cutting the legs off of it and. Um, and it got damaged in the process of being moved to somebody's property. So um, anyway, and then 
they worked to make it right. But yes, we were called in on the park shelter. So this is part of, you know, how much of this stuff do, do you think about, like, what's our priority here today, employees? Like, uh, no. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. Yeah. So if it's in Lila's SI, um, we the prioritization happens like this. If someone is actively stealing, and we have some evidence that someone is acti- actively taking money or assets, that's top of the that's top of the list. And um, we'll get a lot. We get lots of calls from the public. We get other you know reports um, from folks in local government saying something might have happened here. And so, but we always have to prioritize if there's active theft. And and sometimes small cities or entities will say, "Can you guys do the forensic work? We can't afford to hire someone to do it." So we do it for them so that they can take. Um, steps to remove somebody from their position and that's a personnel matter which is not public so we've assisted in that way too so uh, I, I wanted to come back so the the park shelter one uh is interesting and this other this isn't really a park sh- uh, this isn't a park shelter thing of all the things that i brought uh but because you say like this is for you but uh the the language on these is uh challenging uh, sometimes. So it, like, this is an actual like statement of this. So the purpose of this report on internal control over compliance is solely to describe the scope of our testing of internal control over <laughs> compliance <laughs> and the result of testing based on that requirement of the uniform guidance. Accordingly, this report is not suitable for any other purpose. I don't think Thank that's Thank God. I... Didn't... You made that up. No, I didn't make that up. <laughs> But uh, so, Mike, I mean, there's a part of this, like, I, I, I honestly wonder about, because it's, uh, I think that this, the, I think that the, the language here is important because it's, if this is meant to be sort of like engaging for uh, people, people, are, citizens are meant to be empowered uh, with using this stuff. How, 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 do we need to take a class? Do you offer... <laughs> That did not go with this report. You were making it up. It went with another report. It's another report. Take yes. that back. That is a so, different kind of report. This report ended actually much nicer. I hope you find this information helpful. If you have any questions about this matter, please feel free to contact me. And before that, before that, can I just read this yeah, one paragraph? Yeah. I'm sorry, team. Let's just get it on the record, okay? <laughs> The OSA understands the city is in the process of drafting a policy on the disposition of surplus property, which should be a good step in avoiding concerns similar to those that arose um, concerning the park shelter. Since some of the controversy regarding the park shelter related to whether it had value or not, the city may find it useful to include in its policy a process for determining the value of the property. Is that... That's such a good reading of that. That's like, you should do the audible version of the (laughs) county report. Um... But you know what? I will tell you, Tane. Yeah. Let me say something to yeah, you that's yeah. very important. So we have auditors and we have attorneys. And I'm the, I'm the, I know. And I'm the person in the middle. Now, sometimes the audit reports, that thing that you read came from an audit report. That was like pure, that was a financial audit. Um, and that is fairly dry and it's very technical. On the other side, when we issue letters like that to that city, I, I, I say to my staff, they have to be able to understand this, right? And the public needs to be able to understand it because if no one understands it, we've done nothing. So you have to have legal citations in there and some technical language, but at the end of the day, you have to make sure that it is actually understandable. So, and I think that that was part of uh, wh- what I'm trying to get at is that on the site, you know, or on your site, there's yeah. there are these, you know, just years worth of reports and whatnot. Yeah. And I just picked a couple at <laughs> random, but I, I mean, I, how do you think about your role in terms of making this both, you know, technical and legal so that it checks mm-hmm. all those boxes, but also something that, you know, if I'm just a citizen and I'm like, what is my city up to? I can pick it up and actually understand what mm-hmm. they're doing. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
Okay, good. Um. <laughs> no, I actually go out and I do education. So I train local government officials. I go out and speak to the public whenever they invite me to help them understand their government, to help, under help them understand the processes that that are in place and procedures and, and if there's an issue that they can come to us. And we do issue educational materials the public does use. They'll go to the city council meeting and let's say the state auditor says, and it might be uh, around contracting and bidding, it might be around um, legal investments, what they can or can't invest in, or procedure um, meeting minutes, whatever. So, um, and those have to be understandable. They put legal citations on, but they're understandable. Oh, uh, Carmen, who actually has a JD, uh, is uh, so. If you do, you two want to just talk? Uh, go ahead. No, no, no. I was just wondering, do you have any interactive maps about infrastructure on your website? Carmen is asking just for the podcast record <laughs> if you have any infrastructure, interactive infrastructure maps on your website. What a random question, Carmen. Uh, good. Yes, yes, I do. Yes. Yes, yes, I do. So that's actually what I want to do with all the financial data reports that we have is I want to create GIS maps. So rather than having to go through these huge spreadsheets that we have on local government financial information, um, I've created one around civil infrastructure. And it's a, so you could take your little mouse and you can find your city, and it's a dot, and you just click on it, and then information will pop up. There's a dashboard on the left that tells you about civil infrastructure, drinking water production and wastewater treatment, um, and then sewer lines, and it's sexy stuff. <laughs> right? It's so sexy. And um, no, seriously, you like if your toilet does not flush, just saying. So, um, Or if you turn your water on and it doesn't work or it comes out brown, it's upsetting. So it's really the stuff in government that I worry about. We have a lot of civil infrastructure out there, and there's a lot of data sitting out in data silos, and I'm working to pull it all in. The University of Minnesota is helping me to map it out and to create something very visual and simple for the public to look at to understand what's out there, how old is it, what condition is it in. And so, yes, we are working on that, Carmen. And um, there is a new iteration to this map that's going to be coming out that is going to blow your mind. <laughs> not don't, not I, even kidding. I was at the Minnesota Rural Water Association Conference. And well, just stop right I'm there. I'm just because saying. I, this you, is a, this is know, a family-friendly show. <laughs> um, and If you could have seen their eyes, we showed them. We have previewed the new iteration of the maps, and they were like, they were, uh-oh, someone got a picture. They were, um, no, they were really in awe. So I can't wait to release those, but we still need to do a little work on working out some glitches, so. Okay, so we have two other uh, ginormous things to get to in the <laughs> next four minutes. Okay, so, uh, let's go. So I, I, it'd be remiss of me not to talk about, uh, uh, there was a law passed in 2015 that yeah. dramatically affected your office. Yes. Uh, so it basically gave uh, cities permission. Counties. Counties, excuse me, mm -hmm. counties permission uh, to uh, hire a private uh, auditor mm -hmm. to audit their financial records. Rather uh, than the Office of the State Auditor. Rather than the state, and so you yeah. are currently in a lawsuit uh, yes. with is it are you specifically the three counties mm -hmm. uh, Carver County nope. no no Ramsey County <laughs> yes uh, what are the other two Wright and Becker Wright and Becker and we also name the state and and you name the state so just to sort of state to claim set the table for this um, the the premise here that Republicans who passed this law said Democrats uh, too some Democrats too, and signed by a Democratic governor, um, said cities uh, should have the, you know. Counties. Uh, counties, sorry. <laughs> counties. <laughs> counties should have the, this is why you're a good auditor. Uh, county. No. Tane, you want me to do it? No. You want me sure, to do it? Yeah, I'll do county, it. Okay. Counties, what, so what is their, what is their argument? <laughs> well, they don't have an argument. Um, so, so first, one, um, 
the office of the state auditor, it's not my office. It's the people's office. It's your office. It's your office. And it serves you. So our founders were very wise. Way back in the 1800s, the founders understood, they had seen it already, that um, when it comes to the people's money, some people behave badly. And so they knew that they needed an independent um, office on, that was there for the people and their best interests. So they put the Office of the State Auditor in the Constitution in the 1800s. Before that, they'd had a territorial auditor. You guys are listening, right? And, um, and so anyway, but they understood that. And so the State Auditor has been there since the beginning of time, working with counties. And so the legislature in 2015, um, in the middle of the night, last day of session, passed a bad law. Bad law, bad process. And they ran over the people. They ran roughshod over you. So they didn't respect the Constitution. Um, so we're suing on two major things. We're suing on separation of powers, which is in our Constitution. And I took an oath. I said I was going to defend our Constitution. So I'm doing just that. And I have to stand up. <laughs> Thank you. It's standing up for the people and their interests. So I'm there for you. And um, the other piece is uh, single subject clause. That's yeah, my favorite it, clause. His eyes just went. No, like, that's you can't <laughs> slip something into an omnibus bill. Exactly. So the, the, you're supposed to have a, the title is supposed to reflect a single subject within the bill, and they are creating these what I call garbage bills. They're just loaded up. So they take these finance bills, and then they start slipping and hiding little policy pieces. Why is that an issue? Because then it basically is another unconstitutional thing. There's a check, checks and balances in the Constitution. The governor is allowed to line item veto money in finance bills. He cannot line item veto policy. So basically, he has a gun to his head at the end of session that says, you veto this governor, and this, the government shuts down. He already went through that in 2010, and he didn't feel he could risk it again. It was like 7,000 state employees, and he said, I can't do this. So that's what they've done, and I will fight this until I'm done. So I'm at the Court of Appeals. We had our oral arguments on Wednesday. It went really well, and I'm really hopeful that the courts are going to defend our Constitution because if our Constitution doesn't mean anything, we're in really big trouble. So part of what the uh, the folks who passed this bill say is that, uh, yes, we had an auditor uh, in different roles at times, but the actual mm, process of auditing counties didn't really come around until the 70s when the legislature pointed that to the auditor, uh, that before that, the role that role was somewhere else in government, and so why can't they say that it goes somewhere else? So the state auditors always work with counties, and we've audited their tax receipts. We did voucher auditing for them. Auditing has changed over time. So in the 1800s, there wasn't a lot of money flowing. Um, in the 70s, there was a lot more money in government. And so all kinds of systems changed in the 70s, and they decided to create the Office of the Legislative Auditor. Um, they got rid of the public examiner. The public examiner was appointed by the governor, not elected by the people, appointed by the governor. This office is the office that's always served the people, and only the people can say we're done with the off-state auditor through a constitutional amendment. That's the deal. So we've always worked with counties, but the nature of auditing changed as well, and that's when we, since we'd already been working with counties, we took all that, and then it was these, their big financial statement audits, legal compliance audits, the single audit. Um, so anyway, it's technical. I don't want to bore your audience, but... Please, it's the theater of public <laughs> policy. That's why we're here. But, but um, can I tell you, Tane, something that you would love? Sure. In the historical historical society, they have all these old records from counties. You can go in and look at the correspondence between state auditors from the 1800s with the counties. If you need to see for yourself, they're there. So uh, there's a piece of this that I always struggle with. So you're uh, elected as a DFLer to this role that is sort of constitutional, mm -hmm. uh, constitutionally created office, yeah. a constitutional officer. And um, and it seems it always seems odd to me to sort of have this partisan uh, framing on this role. 
and so part of my question, I guess, with this line of uh, with the uh, lawsuit and whatnot is, you know, let's say I don't have you said whether you're go I know we're going to talk in just a second about what you have said you're going to run for in 2018. Are you going to uh, potentially run for auditor again? No. So if somebody else is auditor and they're just like, yeah, I'm fine with this, like let cities or let counties uh, like have whoever, then does it just go away? Well, I'm really hoping the courts will finish this before my term is done because they need to, because I'm the one that's suing. That's okay. So I think they understand the If there are any judges listening to this <laughs> uh, right now in the audience. Um, <clears throat> they should, um, they have about 90 days to decide the court of appeals. And so that'll be around June 9th that we'll know by. Okay, so uh, so uh, we are going to open up for audience questions in the second half, and uh, I'd love to hear some more questions. But uh, in the interest of time, I have to say, so you've said that you're gonna you're running for governor right now. Yes, um, I, yes you're, I announced in You're currently yes. running for governor. Yes. You announced just to set this. So you got through 2016. You're like that. That election cycle was so fun. I just we got to keep that going. No, that was 2014. Oh, you mean this last this last yeah, election cycle? Yeah, like yeah, I got to yeah. announce immediately so we can just keep the election stuff going. No, no. But you really. <laughs> yeah. So why why announce? That's just one question. Why announce in January of 2017 for an election in 2018? Because my campaign's going to be different, and I'm different. Um, and there is a lot of angst right now about what, what happened in this last election. There's a lot of angst around what may happen at the federal level and what it means to us as a state, our health, the quali quality of life. Um, I want to take time, and this is my style. This is what I've done when I was on school board, state rep, or state auditor, is really truly listening to people and understanding, um, first of all, I'm asking people what their hopes and dreams are for our, our collective future as a state. What are our hopes and dreams? What's the next big thing for Minnesota that we should be shooting for? Because we are changing demographically. Um, and also, I'm deeply, deeply troubled by the huge divide, and there's this, this lack of unity. And in Minnesota, it's really dangerous. It's dangerous country, you know, across the country, but in Minnesota, we had this rural metro split, and it's serving certain purposes, but it is hurting us. And I know the finances of our state. I understand the importance of keeping our eye on the ball, having proactive preventative policies, wise investments. I'm watching this infrastructure stuff just sit and not getting done. So I'm creating this map that is going to change the conversation because it's going to empower people like you. Um, not having to go into big That's finance terrible. reports with That's really dangerous. boring language and, um, and help you understand what is it that we need to get done. So I'm trying to empower the people to take their government back. This takes time. So I announced in very early January, just to let people know what I'm doing, and I've been holding listening sessions around the state, all over the state, and I've been ex really collecting the most extraordinary information, and we're having these really meaningful community conversations, and they are beautiful. And um, what, are you, what are you hearing in those? Okay, so in, I'd say in the rural areas, there's a there's deep concern around depopulation. That's a big issue. Depopulation, what does that do? It creates stress for your schools. How do you keep your schools open? Your funding goes down, right, per people funding. So they said, we've consolidated and consolidated. The buses can only go so far. What else can we do? So that's one. Two, Main Street businesses, depopulation. You need people in your community to, like, you know, frequent the businesses, right? So the less people you have, the less opportunity you have to have these vibrant businesses. And so that makes sense. And so they're deeply concerned about that also. You want me to stop? No. Okay. I'm I'm a, I'm aghasted just um, listening. I'm listening to okay. her right here. Good. So so then so this depopulation issue. So then of course uh, remember we have 853 cities over 600 with under over under 2,500 in population, which with a lot of infrastructure that's very expensive. They want to attract the millennials to their communities. They're like we. So they're trying, right? They're trying, but you know what they have to have? They've got to have broadband. 
because they're not going to come if there's not broadband. They also don't necessarily always like to drive cars. They kind of like public transportation. Yeah, right? <laughs> there was so for the, knowing there was one this, woo for I know. public transportation. Woo-hoo! I'll do um. it too. So anyway, so there's certain fundamentals you have to have in place in order to. So here's what I worry about. Changing demographics, retirements, aging population. We need those millennials in the worst way. If we're going to have a strong economy, we're going to have the workforce that we need. So we have to make sure we have um, the fundamentals in place for them. And in the rural parts of our state, they desperately want to attract them. So it's going to take proper planning, proactive preventative, wise investments. So that's... And then the other piece I got, I was in one county, Redwood County, and they said, you know, our unemployment's really low. I said, oh, great. And they said, well, not really. A lot of people are making $11 an hour, and they're working multiple jobs. And, um, and, it's, and they were worried about people that had children. They said, what is this next generation? What are they losing out on when their parents are working all the time, trying to, just trying to make ends meet? And so that there's stresses that go with that for families. I was in one part of the state up north where there's a real um, opioid epidemic, and um, there's some great poverty too. And so I had this great dynamic group of people, doctors, medical center people, university people, a business person, a mom of nine, a second-grade teacher. It was really a nice cross-section. But they're deeply worried about there's 10% of the births are those children were prenatally exposed to opioids. That's a lot. So it's about 100 babies a year. They get into the schools and they have developmental delays. And they're working so hard to try to educate the kids and save these kids. And they're coming from poverty as well. And so what does that mean to us as a state? And can we get, can we get ahead of this? And so you had all these people with all hands on deck who cared deeply. And, um, but they said, how are we going to make this work? And then they said, you know, we've, so we've got preschool. Well, we have children that will never make it. They come from such poverty, there's nobody to get them there. They said, could the state do something to help transport them so that we can get them the help they need? So those are the conversations I was having, as well as, and this is some of the tough stuff, right? Behavioral health issues, there's more of it in the children right now in our schools. So I've been hearing that consistently no matter where I am, whether I'm in the greater Minnesota area or the metro area. Um, And also just hospital beds um, for people having mental health crises. That is an issue everywhere. And I even know somebody personally who was having a crisis, and there were no beds. And they ended up having to go, I don't know, five hours to find a bed. And in the community where there was the opioid ed- ep- epidemic and all these issues, they have hospital beds right there for people with mental health crises. They said they can't even access them because of policies and funding. So they're keeping them in the emergency room for five days at a time. That doesn't work. So we have things that don't work, right? Um, but what I... Um, what everybody wants, the things I've heard that everybody loves, quality of life. Like, we love our quality of life. We love the arts. We love our, you know, great outdoors and our parks and our waters, our clean water. Clean water is a really big one that I get over and over. Please protect our water. Um, and, but also, there's small business folks that have said to me, we really want to make sure, that, let's be the magnet. Let's be the leader, you know, um, that attracts small business and medium business um, because that is really important for our economy. They said that healthcare thing is the part that if we could figure that out with like a single payer um, and help them overcome that so your healthcare is no longer tied to your job, they really think we'd have a lot more innovation um, and creativity unleashed if we could figure that out and also be a magnet. So it's looking at those nuggets and pieces that will make us continue to make sure that we're a leader. All right. Uh, on that note, we're going to open up for questions later, but a big round of applause. State Auditor This gentleman uh, waved me down before you... Before the round actually started, but so he cheated a little, but that's okay because I'm going to come here anyway. Rebecca. Yes. When did numbers 
first get you off. Um, I this is a family show, <laughs> sir. Wait, so, uh, can I uh, can I reframe the question? Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so just when did you? What? Because uh, yeah, so uh, you you ran for you ran for state auditor, yes. um, and uh, why? I guess is a fair question. You you know you to make sure the numbers add up. To make sure when when that's what I ran on. But to make sure the numbers add up. If I read your bio correctly, you were uh, a <laughs> Were you a biology major in, in college? Yes. Science. 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 And so then yeah. I, I think that this gentleman framed slightly differently had a fair question, <laughs> uh, which is just when did sort of the numbers and making those add up become... For a long time. Long time. Well, give us a give us an origin moment. An give origin a, moment. Like, give us like the, you know... When I you, got the abacus when I was two? Yeah, exactly. Like your grandfather's abacus. <laughs> I think I always liked to count. I was good at it. Oh, I like the music. <laughs> I was very good at math in school, and I was, I think, in the top 5% of my class in my high school when girls weren't supposed to do well. I didn't really know that. No one told me. So, um, no, really, I'm serious. I And then I re- think back, and there were a lot of boys in my class. But, um, no, I've always liked numbers. And science um, also is its own discipline, and I think, and you work with a lot of data. And so... Oh my gosh! This is—I've never done this answer before. Um, when I, I um, whenever I've been in government, whether it was school board or state representative, the numbers have always been really important to me. And so I've worked. Um, and to me, transparency and accountability is very important for the public. So it's trust. So numbers have to add up in government. When I ran for state auditor, when I was thinking about it, I actually looked into a bunch of reports and found hundreds of millions of dollars in errors. Um, under the, the leadership of the auditor that I beat by the largest margin in 112 years against an incumbent state auditor. So, and I didn't, I, and I ran on making sure the numbers add up in government. And my ad was me circling the incorrect numbers in red. I'm not kidding. And what was really interesting is I went to a mall where there was a bunch of food vendors and there was a gentleman who was a refugee and English was not his first language. And he said, oh, I know you, you the lady who circled the numbers in red. So he knew too universally that it was making sure the numbers add up. So I just think that's really, really important, especially when it comes to government, that we get things right that people can trust, that nobody feels the books are being cooked. Okay, uh, there was a question in the front, and then I'll come back this way, I promise. Yes. Uh, You mentioned single-payer health system in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. Huge fan, and I think we need it nationally. Um, I don't think it's happening under Trump. No, no, of course not. Anyway, so I just saying, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the feasibility yes. of yes. doing it just at the state level. Mm-hmm. So I could switch jobs or I could be an independent contractor yeah. and have a single-payer health system. How could we do that just at the state level? I'm talking – so he's asking how can we do single-payer as a state. Federally is probably not a very good chance. We're still trying to figure out what the, what the new administration is going to do. I feel better saying that. And – Yeah, I know. They're figuring it out, too. So it's going to have real financial implications for us, and it's also going to have real implications for people's lives in our state, a lot of people. So if we end up being left on our own or given a block grant and things kind of go to heck in a handbasket, Minnesota has always been um, a leader in policy nationally. We've, We've led the nation in some of the best policy. And so I'm running for governor because, to me, it's an extraordinary opportunity to do the right thing. And I've been speaking to experts. Um, I've got a friend who's an economist who this she worked on this issue actually in the legislature, and she has been going through with me all the different 
ways single payer plans or you know systems have been developed where our system sits today and how you know I'll tell you one thing you have to understand in government nothing ever moves fast we don't do well moving fast so it's always gradual and so you have to gradually get to where you want to be and it's understanding what those steps are my job as the governor is going to be and as the candidate is going to be to create a compelling vision that nobody can argue with, that we can get lots of Minnesotans behind, that makes sense economically for all of us, that then we will, which will also help sweep a lot of people into office so that we can get that done. I will tell you, as I've been traveling the state, there are even people who are um, of both party persuasions that are convinced now single payer is probably the right thing to do. And it's a matter of what it looks like. Okay, so it's not going to be, you know, the ultimate. You're going to have to take steps to get there. But I would be excited to do that because, to me, it would make us a, a leader in the nation, and it would get rid of an impediment for a lot of people who might want to do something innovative and different. So just um, to put a yep. fine point on this, yes. uh, is a is a just, just to put a fine point on this. Applause. Uh, so just to put a fine point on this. So is a, is a vote for Rebecca Otto for governor a vote for single payer in Minnesota or a candidate who will push for that as a governor? So we have to see what the federal level does, right? And, and so if they want to undo the whole ACA and they want to, you know, it's what we're left with. So right now what we have to do is it's moving. It's a moving target. And if they just say, to heck with the ACA, you get a block grant, you're on your own then that's one. So we have to see what they do. But um, absolutely, I want to make sure that we are the leader in the nation, that as our population ages, that we have a robust economy, which is going to take some doing, and it's going to take planning. And um, and that would be a piece of decoupling your job from your health care. And I love to take on challenges, and I love to reform. So that would be something that I would be thrilled to do. Okay, other questions? I want to uh, come over here. Yes, here, yeah. Um, yeah, so I was wondering, you mentioned in the first half about the urban-rural divide and how you see that that's a big problem for our state. Yeah. Can you talk about how you would approach government differently or what policies you would enact towards that and bridging that gap? Thank you for that question. And um, so <clears throat> 2002, when I was running for the legislature, I had a party, and it was um, feature. It, it had Walter Mondale and Arnie Carlson. So, um, and... They did it together, and my party was called One Minnesota because I understood back in the early 2000s how important it was that we focus on our entire state. It's like your body. You know, if you take care of your body and your health, you have to take care of all parts of your body. Our whole state is important, and there's different needs sometimes in different parts of the state, but um, um, I live on the edge. I don't live in Minneapolis or St. Paul. I live out on a small farm. You probably don't believe it, but I shovel manure every morning. <laughs> I clean up well, right? So, um, <clears throat> and I bale hay in the summer, and... Um, and so I serve on the Rural Finance Authority where we finance farm operations. I served on ag policy and ag finance in the legislature. And I used to teach kids when I, I taught years ago, seventh grade life science. And I used to take the, take the kids to ag days um, at the U of M. So agriculture, I understand it. I can, I can talk it. I drive a tractor. Um, I pull hay bales off of our baler. And, um, and so... I will work extraordinarily hard to pull us back together. We must be together. It's the only way we're going to make it. There's a reason why, you know that tactic of divide and conquer? There's a reason why there are different interests, especially large corporate interest, interests, that want to divide and conquer because it weakens you. So we must be together and united and working together for a statewide agenda, and that will be the way that I, um, that I, that, that I am the governor. And... It's through messaging, it's through action, it's through managing the legislature. I actually learned about that from Arnie Carlson, how you manage the legislature. 
It's not like a seventh grade classroom, but it is just a little bit. So if I can... And um, uh, yes. I, 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 sorry, I'm up here. <laughs> so it's, her question, though, was about, is there a particular policy or uh, something that you can point to uh, in beyond sort of rhetoric and talking about it differently that you're saying, this is something that we need to do that actually sort of brings those two together? What I've been told as I've been out in the rural areas is they've said to me, please don't forget us. What they're told is they're forgotten, they're not cared about, and that they're also told all, all evil emanates from Minneapolis and St. Paul. They, they say it and they believe it and they, for, you know. But what I'll do is they said have an economic agenda. Remember when, you know, we, were, we, we have a depopulation issue. So they want to see something in my platform. They will have it and then I will work for it. Um, and I, I'll just tell you, um, I chaired a levy referendum in a very conservative community years ago when they would not pass them, and they did, because I focused on our values. Um, when I ran for state representative, it was in the same Senate district Michelle Bachman was serving in. Yeah. So I know conservative, and, um, and I have a way of messaging, and I have a way of working with people that is very hard to um, fight. And so um, I will show it by the agenda that I develop to show them and then it's going to be carrying that through and I'll tell you something when you have the hearts and minds of the people who vote that's when you get things done and it's my job to do that to convince them and persuade them and anybody who knows me who's known me my whole life knows I'm extraordinarily persuasive I do my homework um, and I would not do this if I couldn't win and I wouldn't do it if I didn't think I could change the world but I'm going to need everybody to make that happen okay we have a question was it yes right here Tell us a little bit about building your house and what you think of, uh, think of renewable energy. Okay, so another thing you don't know about me is, um, no, my husband and I designed and built our own home many years ago before it was sexy to do. Um, it's a renewable energy home. So it, we have, um, we're super insulated, airtight construction, mechanically ventilated, partially earth burned, passive solar, so we're south facing, all glass. Um, then the north has very little glass. We have a wind generator, which is now 23 years old. We have, um, we added solar panels a couple years ago. They're extraordinary. And we also have geothermal heating and cooling. And we drive EV cars. <clears throat> yeah. So Are you f officially off the grid? <laughs> Well, um, we didn't design it that way. We decided to hook up with the grid only because you have to have a battery bank, and those things are kind of toxic. They take up a lot of room. They're expensive. You have to dispose of them. So we tie it into the grid, and we feed into the grid, um, which is fine. And um, You say that in such a wonderful Minnesotan way. Like, you like it's that? Fine. It's fine. We're <laughs> on the grid. Whatever. You know. Well, it wasn't expensive. Sometimes if you live really far out, it's very cost prohibitive to tie into the grid, so you want to be off the grid. We're on the grid. Um, and, and so we have that as a luxury if we ever sold our home. But um, this summer we had uh, credit on our bills with those um, solar panels. This, when you know that big wind we had a couple days ago, it was about, you know, 48 hours of really good wind. That'll make enough power for us with our generator for an entire month. So all I'm saying is, I've been, my husband and I understood climate change a really long time ago. They've known for a long time. We know that it has an impact on our, you know, burning fossil fuels has an impact on our health. It has an impact on our climate, and um, so we've always tried to lead the way, and um, we've shared our home with probably 20,000, 30,000 people with tours over time, classrooms, um, we hold parties every fall, and so people have been through our home, and we've shared it, and we know we've inspired some to do something different, and that was our goal. Okay, we have time for maybe one last question. Does somebody feel like they have a really good ending question? I have so appreciated everything you have said. And when you talked at first about the divide, I thought something was going to come to mind, and it was a different divide than I thought. So we have an urban-rural divide in our state. We also have 
some of the most yeah. stark racial disparities in education, yes. in healthcare, yes. in civic engagement, yes. and so on. So can you talk about how you'd address that? Yes. Okay, so I'll try to be brief. Thank you. And you're absolutely right. So I serve on the Housing Finance Agency Board where we work to uh, finance affordable housing. We've been working really hard on um, trying to um, – there's a big gap in home ownership and minority, the minority community. We have a gap in our educational outcomes. I taught in the schools. I'm very aware of it. I'll tell you something we don't do in government. We do, I'm going to be an evidence-based governor. I'm all about science and research. The University of Minnesota has a great program. We do a lot of research on education. We must – get away from political rhetoric and education policy and get back into um, research-based policy that gets at those, that begins to make a difference. And you have to allow for pilot projects and programs. Um, and there, we already know, we don't have to do studies, we know some of the things that hold kids back, right? There's risk factors and everything else. So we must have put all hands on deck. We need all children in Minnesota to be successful in order for us to make it over the next decade or two. We need them in our workforce. Um, okay, so homeowner, economic. We have a huge economic gap for, again, our, our, um, our minority communities. It's not acceptable. Um, and so there will be some things I can specifically do around that. Um, I think the people who serve in elected office should reflect more our actual society. We're slowly getting there. I've mentored candidates who, um, and I actually bring in girl, young, young girls and young men who from minority communities to shadow me for a day. We have a lot of work to do in terms of getting more folks serving in government um, that reflect our communities. And then also who I have in my cabinet, who I appoint to boards. That is also another area. You need to put people in leadership positions. And it takes time to build all of this, but we do have more work to do. People want uh, – this is, this is, can I close with this? Who can stop you? <laughs> Nobody. Um, sorry, you could if you want to. Um, you could just turn that little button off. All of us want to be able to get, engage in society in a meaningful way. All Minnesotans want to be able to engage in society in a meaningful way. All parents and aunts and uncles and grandparents want their children, their grandchildren, their you know, nieces and nephews to be able to engage in society in a meaningful way. And it's incumbent upon government to make sure we have put those fundamentals in place, that infrastructure. And when something is not working, fix it. And I've never been afraid or shied away from digging into those difficult issues, finding the low-hanging fruit, and moving it forward. And so I will surround myself with experts. I've never been afraid to do that. And um, so that's who I'll be. That's what I am. And that, that's it. Ladies and gentlemen, a big round of applause. Uh, Rebecca. Thank you for listening. Our show was recorded live at the Bryant Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. If you'd like to see us in person, you can find our schedule by going to www.t2p2.net or find us on Facebook or Twitter. Thanks. <laughs>